Hello, everybody. It's uh, Larry Kotlikoff with Economics Matters, the podcast. I'm back with my great buddy, Glenn Lowry, to talk about all kinds of issues and things that Glenn is up to. Let me just briefly give you Glenn's abbreviated Wikipedia bio, and then maybe you can add 50, 20 minutes worth <laughs> of honors and uh, medals and so forth he's received for his work. So Glenn is an American economist and academic. He's an author. He's got a new book that's forthcoming, and it's called Late Admissions, Confessions of a Black Conservative. I've read the book. It's fantastic. It's coming out with Norton next year. The exact date is not, has not been revealed, but it's about Glenn's entire life, family life, personal life the ups and the downs, but also about his academic life and how they all intertwined. And it's really one of the best written books you will ever read. It's just marvelous. And anyway, uh, but today we're going to talk about some of the issues that Glenn's been discussing on his own podcast, which is called The Glenn Show with John McWhorter. He often appears with John. And But anyway, to finish a little bit of his of an introduction here, He's the Merton P. Stoltz Professor of the Social Sciences and Professor of Economics at Brown University, and he's taught there since 2005. And before that, he was at Boston University for, I don't know, maybe 10 years. I'm not sure how many, but quite a few. I was there for 14, for 14 years. 14 years. And before that, he was at um, Harvard. He was the uh, first African-American Professor of Economics at Harvard University to gain tenure, that, that happened at age 33. Before that, he was, I think, an assistant professor at Northwestern. He went to um, Northwestern for college. He went to MIT for to get a PhD in economics. And he received a, a lot of prominence over the years, starting during the Reagan administration as a leading Black conservative intellectual. And in the mid-1990s, according to the wiki entry here, he adopted some more progressive views. And now I think he's becoming a little more conservative in his discussions. And the New York Times describes him as a conservative leaning. Now, Glenn's got lots of awards from lots of different prestigious organizations and, and universities and so forth for his uh, contribution as a public intellectual. but. What's less well known is that Glenn is a superb economist, one of the best in the world. And he's written, I would say, the most fundamental work on the economics of racism. So if you really want to understand where racism's coming from, very important to read Glenn's economics work. And I, th I think it's fair to say that this body of work for which I think Glenn deserves a Nobel Prize and may receive it, I'm certainly trying to uh, recommend him when I get a chance. The that body of work I think was uh, done at Boston University, so I'm very proud of that fact. Since I'm a Boston University professor, and since I was the person who uh, actually went out and uh, uh, hired Glenn with the assistance of uh, John Silver, who was the president, and my colleagues. Of course, Glenn had agreed to come, and but I think it was a, a great um, move from Glenn to get away from the stifling uh, environment of Harvard to much more relaxed and maybe more open environment at Boston University. And we have fabulous department that we do now. So I don't think that he, he lost anything on the terms of the colleagues. Uh, but, but anyway, 
Glenn, if you want to add anything to what I just said about your background, then we can maybe just from here, just start dig digging into what's going on in the real world. But tell me if I did you proud enough or whether there's more things that people should know. And we've had you on before. People, other the first podcast I think was one of the best we've had. Lots of people viewed it. It's at larrykotlikoff.substack.com. But anyway, Glenn, respond. You're doing fine, Larry. You, I should just let you go on forever. Very praiseworthy. Thank you. Thank you. I don't know about this talk about the Nobel, man. That's You don't do that. That that puts the bad karma out there. But And and I want to acknowledge my old friend. This is my old friend, Larry Kavikov. Me as chairman of uh, BU's economics department in 1991. He brought me from Harvard to Boston University where I flourished. I wrote paper after paper. I had excellent colleagues. I got back into economics after wandering in the conservative think tank wilderness for a while. And uh, this is my friend, Larry Kotlikoff. Everyone should know he's biased in my favor. Uh, he was the best man at my wedding. Uh, he was uh, MC at my 70th birthday party. He uh, uh, induced the Department of Economics to honor me with a Festriff conference where my work was featured so on. I appreciate your support, Larry. I appreciate your support. About my life, um, I'm an economist first and foremost. That's my home base. That's what I love. I, I just love that we have uh, a something of a grasp on the subtle underpinnings and kind of social dynamics of, of economy, of, of social organization. That's what I try to do in, in my work on inequality and race, try to use economic method, systematic application of relatively straightforward mathematical technique formal modeling, uh, clarity about definition, about who's doing what the information is, what the incentives are, and apply that to uh, problems of inequality and difference and uh, discrimination and stereotype and all of that. You know, I've, I've tried to make a contribution on that front. Um, but I'm a member of the American Philosophical Society. You could have said that. I'm a fellow of the American Academy of Political and Social Sciences. In fact, I'm the John Kenneth Galbraith Fellow for 2022 of the American Academy of Political and Social Sciences. I'm a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. I am a man of letters. Uh, I'm an intellectual of the first rank. And I'll stop this, but I am both this uh, well-trained economic analyst who's looking rigorously at questions of social inequality, but I'm also somebody who reads philosophy and history and literature and has something to say about it. I write pretty well. as those of you who buy my memoir when it comes out next year will find out. So it's all good. Yeah, I, yeah, I forgot to say that you majored in math at, at Northwestern where you went to college and then you went to MIT and then they hired you as an assistant professor. But MIT at the time and still today was probably the first or second or third best uh, economics department. And it's not easy to get a PhD in economics period, but to get an MIT, we're dealing with, Glenn was competing with the creme de la creme of mathematical, uh, we're just really very, very, very people. I was at the top of my class, since this was tooting my horn, I could just say this, I was at the top of my class. In 1974, after my second year, uh, the Stanford Math Econ Center with people like uh, Mordecai Kurtz was running it, and Robert Wilson, the great Robert Wilson, and the great Kenneth Arrow, and they had a summer boot camp for a theorist. I was there. 
with Jean-Jacques Lafont, the late great Jean-Jacques Lafont, with Oliver Hart. Uh, these, they were students and I was there. So it wasn't just that I went to MIT. Again, excuse me for tooting my own horn. I was at the frontier of what was going on at MIT. And I think you hold the record perhaps of any, I think you, when you came to VU, I think within two years, you had four top five journal articles. It's like somebody in economics that's not as well known as in the sciences, but if you were a young scientist and you published four articles in science and nature in one or two years, that would be like an act that's amazing. And that's what Glenn did in the first- I had help. I, I, I had help. Had co-authors. I had Steve Coat. Stephen Coke, Cornell University, was a co-author on three of the four papers because we had two AERs and a recent, and I had this paper that was in, it's not a top five economics journal, it's a top sociological journal, Rationality and Society. James S. Coleman, the great, late, great University of Chicago sociologist, James S. Coleman was the editor on self-censorship, which has become a classic. It's had a huge impact, and there's not a, an equation in that Rationality and Society paper but it, it's erudite and it's on political correctness. It's, it's a classic. I had a, a renaissance in those years. That, let's talk it about me like this. I'm embarrassed, Larry. <laughs> That's okay. You can handle it pretty well. So, <laughs> <laughs> But let's talk about what's going on in the real world outside of academia. Uh, so we just had this decision by the Supreme Court about redistricting. I guess it was in... So Alabama, was that the end? Yeah, it was Alabama. Yeah. It was holding Section 2, Section 5, Voting Rights Act of 1965. One of them had been stricken in an earlier case, and the, everybody was thinking that the Voting Rights Act was going to meet its final denouement when a conservative court, but the court actually, with a majority that Roberts and Kavanaugh, Kavanaugh uh, joining right. the liberals, upheld the basic proposition is that when they redistrict, if they do it in a way that undercuts the black vote, dilutes it, dilutes the black vote, then that's unconstitutional. And they, you know, I should finish explaining. And the Alabama legislature drew the districts in such a way that there was only one majority minority district with a black majority that would vote Democratic and would elect a Democratic congressperson uh, when they could have drawn it so that there were two. And would they be required to do the latter? the court affirmed that they would indeed under this Voting Rights Act be required to do the latter, that they couldn't intentionally jigger the thing so that they, in effect, minimize the number of Black uh, districts. Did that make sense? Let's talk about retirement for a minute. It's something Americans think about regularly. Ask yourself, how financially secure do you really feel? Do you have enough money to retire? How much is really enough? And if you don't have enough money, how can you possibly find that extra money before you do retire? These are all tough questions. My retirement software, Maxify Planner, is the powerful online planning tool that takes the guesswork out of retirement. It weighs your assets against your fixed expenses to calculate how much you can safely spend every year for the rest of your life based on when you decide to retire. And it shows you safe ways to find more money. Maxify makes a complicated problem like retirement planning simple. It's accurate, easy to use, and produces what you really seek, peace of mind. So make the smart choice and visit Maxify.com today. Don't miss this opportunity. That's Maxify with an I, M-A-X-I-F-I, Maxify.com. Now let's get back to the podcast. 
You did, yeah, you explained it well. The, the question I guess I have is, what do you think of the decision? What I know that you have been of the mind. First of all, you laid the ground for racism, explaining racism and how it can be self-fulfilling in terms of people that are being discriminated against taking actions that then reinforce the discriminated discriminators' views in the first place because the whole thing becomes an endogenous process, not just something that's exogenous. So you've been, in many ways, arguing against your earlier work of late for more colorblind society, a world in which we don't have voting right laws. I want everybody listening to actually understand what you're talking about. And I'm with respect. I'm not sure that your exegesis is, is adequate to the task. Not you're gesturing at stuff that deserves to be more fully spelled out. And the first point, and the point that you're making is uh, that I've provided models that explain how a self-confirming stereotype detrimental to a minority group could get established, and how they'd be a feedback loop where if they start off thinking negatively about the group, they configure incentives in such a way that people in the group actually conform with the negative expectation in their own self-interest, but there's no real intrinsic difference between the groups. And in my book, The Anatomy of Racial Inequality, too, it's been reissued in the second edition in 2021. I talk about this. I give an example. I'm all in the service right now, Larry, of explaining where I've identified problems with discrimination to the Rights Act and affirmative action. I have an example. Taxi guys don't want to stop because they think the Black guys are more likely to rob them. So when they see a Black guy, they don't stop. Now, in a matter of fact, black guys and white guys in my hypothetical are no different in terms of how likely they are to rob. 5% of either group is likely to rob. But people don't want to have to wait for a taxi, especially if they're not robbing the taxi. So if taxi drivers slow down and are very reluctant to pick up blacks, the only blacks who will in, choose to be out there trying to hail a taxi are those who will, are willing to tolerate the long wait, which is much more likely to be someone who's going to rob. And so the taxi driver... They're justified in not stopping for the Blacks. And this is a very insidious kind of thing. And, and so that, that's an example of the kind of thing that I've talked about. And in my dissertation, which is way back, 1976, I was interested in the past, and then you have social capital. You have families and communities, neighborhoods and peer groups, friendship networks and professions and organizations and whatnot. You have collectivities, you have networks. So if people are able to get more human capital when their network is rich with successful people. And if you discriminate against a group, like a racial group, like with slavery and Jim Crow, their networks are gonna have relatively fewer successful people by virtue of that. And that will itself through the human capital accumulation process across generational perpetuate uh, uh, inequality. So you shouldn't expect stopping discrimination to lead to racial equality. Therefore, something more is required. And this is the spirit in which I have written in the past. That's all by way of explaining the first part of what you were trying to say. I used to be against discrimination. However, my 1993 AER paper with Cope, Will Affirmative Action Eliminate Negative Stereotypes, showed that incentives can work in all kinds of directions. So an employer thinks I have to lower the bar for my black applicants, otherwise I'm not gonna reach my target. He thinks that because black blacks are underrepresented in that line of uh, activity and uh, there's an objective uh, lower supply of their high quality candidates. So he lowers the bar in the interest of equality. On the other side, 
thinking, what are my incentives to invest in acquiring skills when I'm facing a lower bar? Maybe my incentives aren't so great. You understand that as a public finance economist, this is your bread and butter. So affirmative action can backfire. It can backfire, it can have reputational, all kinds of insidious ill effects. But I don't regard that as dispositive. I don't regard that as resolving the question about affirmative action. Uh, what for me in the negative is dignity for black people that I have a model long run steady state equality of respect between the groups that's my goal where my turnpike is asymptoting toward equality of respect between the groups if you use a lower bar as a permanent institutionalized mechanism you will make it impossible to achieve equality of respect because equality of respect can only be stable if it rests on a foundation of equality of performance. And the objective fact is that if you use a lower bar for a racial group, on average, the people you, whom you select are gonna perform less well. So you, you're, you're dodging the, the problem. The problem is foundational. The problem is that when they present the SAT scores, there's not enough of them in the 95th percentile for the thing that you're doing. The thing that you're doing is an engineering program. It's a medical school. It's a law but, school. There's just not enough of them in the 95th percentile. Okay, That's what has to be changed. That's what has to be changed. But Glenn. Thank you, Larry. Thank you for letting me go on for a long time. Man. Okay, that's no, fine. But of course, there's the other side of Glenn, of some of your work that would argue the other way, that if you did engage in affirmative action for a few generations at least, then you're going to have people who have, maybe they've been propelled beyond their true abilities, but they've gotten high paying jobs. So then they've been able to afford the tutors and afford the private schools for their kids. So their kids can then achieve the SAT scores of other people, of other of people that have not been just- Yeah, but, I, but where's, where's the evidence for that, Larry? We are 50 years down the line, yeah. Well, the, the, okay. uh, what, I'm, what I'm saying is, Glenn, what I'm saying is not that you're wrong in the way you come down on the facts and your view of what should happen at the margin in terms of our policies. What I'm saying is that there are that the theoretical argument's not one direction unidirectional, that there are counter arguments even that you've made in your own work that cut the other way. It says I'm that not making a theoretical argument at the when I that that's a philosophical and kind of uh, existential kind of uh, uh, argument. It's a spiritual argument. It's not a theoretical argument. Uh, I'm saying equality resting on these are bedrock definitional things. So I, I'm saying race has to be handled with care in the public square. So, for example, reparations. I know that's not what you asked me about, but that's a it's in the same family. It, it's in the same family, the 1619 Project. Oh, let's go around moaning about how Blacks were mistreated by the American, et cetera, et cetera. I know I'm being provocative. I'm being intentionally pro provocative. The summer of 2020, the riots, okay? Black Lives Matter and all of the corruption and, and of the avoidance, homicide in Black communities, violent crime in cities like Chicago, St. Louis, Cleveland, Detroit, et cetera. Philadelphia, where you're from, 
Chicago, where I'm from, the family, 70% of kids born out of wedlock, the, the incarceration, which they've turned into this cudgel that they're going to beat the society with, but it's really a revelation of the extent of lawbreaking in the community. I'm sorry, I said Okay, you're saying the what's, fact, what's... The fact, No, let me just finish this. Let me finish. Because the hour is late. I'm saying the country is on the line. I'm saying the summer of 2020 took us to the brink. You can't have it that every time a white cop shoots a black kid, whatever the circumstances are, people go around burning shit down. That's not going to hold. That's going to drive fascists into the Oval Office. It's not healthy for our country to talk about 150-year-old debt that you're going to tax scores of millions of immigrants who came to the country from places other than Europe in the last half century in order to affect a transfer to the descendants of slaves. Okay. So, so, so the country is on the brink. You're, you like to talk like this. Excuse me, Larry, for letting me, thank you for letting me go on. You like to talk in apocalyptic terms. I'm now talking in apocalyptic terms. On the race question, the country is at the brink. It's not a question of theory. It's a question of wisdom, experience, and judgment about how to manage this issue. Obama, we can, let me put all the red meat on the table. Go ahead. So you elected a black president. You, Lawrence Kotlikoff, elected a black president. I know you patted yourself on the back when you did it. He had the opportunity to change the race conversation. Instead, he made Al Sharpton a household name. And when Freddie Gray got killed by police in Baltimore, he didn't know what to say. And when Trayvon Martin got killed by a citizen in Florida, if he had a son, he'd look like Trayvon and so and so forth when he could have said what I'm saying right now. And it would have been better for the country if he had done so. Anyway, my goal in life now is not to prove another theorem for the American Economic Review. My goal in life is to move the needle on this discussion. And I'm moving it in a conservative direction. The war on cops, it's an absolutely, it's an inanity. Public safety, is the foremost question if you're a working class person of color living in a big American city. War on cops. I think, you Glenn, you're, I think you're exaggerating a bit because this is not the majority of people on the left who are advocating defunding police. This was some extreme people, just like the right has crazies. We have the people on the left crazy. I think what you're saying is that the the important thing you're saying is that this experiment, 70-year experiment, you think has actually happened. A lot of people think that it hasn't happened. It's been basically real rhetoric, but there hasn't been a real trial of this policy of affirmative action in a major way. Now, just hang on a second. Um, you're not going to like to hear this, but nonetheless, there are there is that perspective. You, you feel that it has been tried and has failed, and that we need to change policies to become much more, let's say, colorblind would be the right term, I think. You are putting so, words in my mouth. You're putting words in my mouth, but go ahead. I, I didn't okay. say that. Well, I think that's my, a, a gross oversimplification. I know. Here's what I think. I think Black people need to man and woman up. I think patronizing is the wrong way to go. I think the problem confronting the uh, Black people is what to do with our freedom, not how to end our oppression. I think this trope, this pose 
of uh, anti-black racism, systemic racism, white supremacy is a dodge. I think the reason that they wanna talk about the 19th century is because the 21st century is too tough. I think the Chinese are coming. I think the world is a small place growing smaller at every moment. Uh, I don't think, as, as I say, I think the hour is late. This is way beyond a liberal, a liberal and conservative. And it, this is beyond policy. This, this is, anyway. Okay, but we still have, we, so we have people on the right saying defund police. We also have people like President Trump, former President Trump, saying these Nazis marching in the streets in Charlotte or wherever uh, are just as good as, you're good people. Uh, we have crazies on both sides. I'm sorry, this is ridiculous. He said he thought there were good people on both sides of the take down the Robert E. Lee statue thing. He didn't say he thought the Nazis were good people, but it does even to, well, that came, to say that. <laughs> okay, that came across to the in that well, form. Yeah, okay, okay. It maybe got misquoted, maybe you should have corrected it. No, he's Trump. <laughs> I, I grant you that Trump is a definite thing. He stands for something, and it's an I understand you evoke it in that context, and I accept that. I'm not questioning that. But let me ask you this question about going back to the this Supreme Court decision about redistricting. Do you think that should have been, was that the, the correct decision in your view? Would, would you have voted okay. for Robert's uh, side or the other side in that? Okay, so my take on it is not going to be original. I read this in an article somewhere, but I think it's right. I think Robert's is salvaging the legitimacy of the court by not doing too much too soon. And I think is less an endorsement of the underlying legal argument than it is a ratification of the political argument. The court's on a slippery slope. It's on a banana peel off to a bad place uh, for a variety of reasons, but mainly because of overturning uh, the abortion uh, case, which is there's six conservative justices on the Supreme Court. There are a lot of Catholics. I don't mean it in an anti-Catholic way. I just simply mean to acknowledge the reality of the fact that Amy Coney is who he is, et cetera. So there's cultural contestation involving the legitimacy of the court. And this Voting Rights Act thing, which I'll get to the substance of it in a moment, is symbolically hallowed ground, okay? It's John Lewis, Martin Luther King Jr. It's the civil rights movement. It's the fruit of the thing. It's voting, it's black people voting. It's suppression, minority suppression. They don't wanna let us vote. Okay, so it, it's hallowed ground. So wisdom prevailed, and they didn't do what the hotheads uh, who were more regarding themselves as principled and were antagonistic to the racial regime like Justice Thomas might have done. I haven't read all the opinions. I'm not a lawyer, so you can take this for what it's worth. But here's what I think about the substance of the issue. I think it is a historical relic the Voting Rights Act of 1965 comes at the end of the Jim Crow era of vote suppression and exclusion under explicitly racist regimes in the states of the South. No one thinks that's the case today. That's not the case. Please don't get mad at me, everybody. I'm for black people voting. I want whatever. What I'm saying is we're talking about the foundations of political representation in our country. But why do you think that the... Let me finish this, Larry, please, come on. You're not listening to me. It'll be brief. Do we want to root that in racial identity? Do we want to make our concept of political representation turn on racial identity? I think the answer to that question must be, at the end of the day, no. 
And that's why I would probably be sympathetic to the ill-considered conservatives who would strike down the totality of the Voting Rights Act. Uh, I think that ill-considered for the reasons I've stated, but I think there is a principle at stake here. And, and we're in a kind of a conundrum. We've inherited a regime. It was appropriate to the time. It embodies certain kind of fundamental issues like political representation by race. You don't want that. You, I'm, I happen to be black. Another person who happens to be black doesn't represent me in virtue of that fact. That's not what we want. But, okay, but Glenn, Let's when you have- finish. I'm finished. Okay, thank you. But when you have the state of Alabama, the, presumably the Republican majority in the, in the legislature, districting the state in a manner that's conspicuously racist in the sense of districting, making districts that have uh, enough of a white majority to limit the number of potentially black representatives. That suggests to me that times haven't changed as much as you think. You and I both lived through the, you know, the 50s and, and we saw what true racism was about no, I'm, I'm sorry, Larry. I'm sorry. I don't buy it. They're Republicans. They're Republicans. You've got an identification problem. Remember that one from Econometrics? <laughs> and what I'm saying is you're trying to infer the motive of the Republicans. The Blacks are all voting Democrat. The only way you get a Democratic congressman in Alabama is for it to be a Black vote. They don't no. want Democrats. Let's let me finish the argument. Okay, they don't want Democrats. Therefore, they draw the district line in which they get fewer Democrats. That happens also to be the ones in which there are the few Blacks because you cannot identify from the fact that they drew the line whether the motive was racial or it was a partisan politics. The two things are highly correlated with one another. You've got a very few observations, my brother. Are you going to say there's no difference? It doesn't matter wanted most Republicans, or if their motives was that they wanted to keep the Blacks out, it, it amounts to the same thing? Okay, so if it is just to keep the Democrats out, would you then vote with the Robert side? Let's argue that it was just to keep the, has nothing to do with race. I, I, wouldn't, just vote with the Roberts, I wouldn't vote with the Robert side for the reasons that I stated, which is that the legitimacy of the court is at stake, and it's a sacred, it's a sacred ground that you're treading on and making theoretical constitutional arguments on that sacred ground in our time would undermine the court. And so the better part of wisdom would be to allow the status quo to stand. Okay, that, that, okay, that's so what I would have done, okay? Yeah. But what I'm saying is, what I'm saying is, bad for America is the racialization of our partisan politics. The Democrats do it too. You're talking about a Republican state legislature in Alabama drawing district lines. The president of the United States builds a large part of his political identity around appealing to the fears and concerns that African-Americans might have about white supremacy in the country. And it's clearly an appropriation. It's clearly a device and it, it, it Jim Crow 2.0. We're going to put y'all back in chains. This is Joe Biden talking to black people you're not really black. If you have to figure out what to vote for, you're black. This is Joe Biden telling the country, when I make a Supreme Court appointment, it's going to be a black woman. When I appoint a vice president, it's going to be a black woman. The race card 
is freely available to be played by a lot of different people. And I'm not a colorblind simpleton, but I think it's better country to uh, reinforce the playing of the race card. Want more money, less risk, and a better life? Buy Money Magic, a new book by Lawrence Kotlikoff, Boston University economist, personal finance expert, and best-selling author. Whether it's education, career, marriage, housing, investing, retirement, social security, IRA or 401k decisions, Money Magic delivers scores of secrets to raise your living standard. Financial journalist Jane Bryant Quinn says Money Magic is a must read. Nobel laureate George Akerlof says Money Magic is quite probably the best financial advice book ever written. Financial guru John Malden says, You'll love this amazing book. It's full of wit, wisdom, and startling paths to a better financial life. And columnist Scott Burns calls Money Magic a funny, brilliant read, offering wildly powerful, unconventional choices that can literally change your life. Get Lawrence Kotlikoff's Money Magic today at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and independent booksellers. Okay, I want to get, basically get your views. So we got your view of that. I think my... I happen to share it about that decision. What about the uh, affirmative action case in front of the Supreme Court with respect to the Harvard lawsuit? I guess it's students for a fair admissions uh, case where some, the argument was that is that Asian students are being discriminated against because of affirmative action policies at Harvard. And I guess they've lost in the district and they've yeah. lost at the one of the levels of appeals court or the district court and they lost at a lower court it's been joined with yeah. the university of north carolina case so there's a public and a private institution the same plaintiff student for fair admissions and this is alex bloom i think that's the guy's name who's right. a, a big uh, anti-affirmative action campaigner has been doing this for years and years uh who's organized these plaintiffs they're asians uh and it's testing yet again at the high court level, the constitutionality of affirmative action uh, with the twist that the plaintiffs are Asians. Uh, I actually signed on to a brief supporting the plaintiffs that went into the lower court proceedings of some economists who were confronted with the expert witness testimony of Peter Arcidiacono, who's a Duke labor economist, econometrician, and he's the expert for the plaintiffs, the students for fair admission in this case. And the great David Card, Nobel laureate, UC Berkeley labor economist, very distinguished, who's the expert witness for Harvard, the defendants in this case. And I, I read these briefs and I actually thought for what it's worth, it's not my specialization within the field of labor economics, this kind of uh, heavily empirical analysis I thought that R.C. Diakono had the better of it. And what it came down to, in my judgment, this is something that's going to get decided. It has been decided against what I'm about to say in the lower court, is they had a problem because if they use only academic criteria for admitting students, they get too many Asians. So they broadened it to academic and personality and other kinds of non-academic qualities of the student in such a way that Sartre could credibly maintain that if you did the regressions right, there was no real statistically significant anti-Asian bias. It's just that R.C. Diacono in his regressions didn't include the right personality variables to account for the fact that the Asians were coming in at a lower rate. 
I'm sorry if that sounded convoluted, but that kind of is what it comes down to. It comes down to a specification dispute and the relative weight that's given to non-academic traits in assessing the fitness of an applicant for admission to Harvard University. And you're trying to infer motive, just like you are inferring motive about the Alabama state legislature who draw those district lines in a certain way. Harvard draws its district lines, the lines it uses to decide who gets in a particular way. And the question, did they genuinely value the non-academic leadership quality, personality, uh, uh, multivalent uh, 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 interest and so forth, as much as they claim that they did, or did they only pretend to value them in that way in order to make sure that the Asian numbers were not too great? So that's what's at stake. I think a lot of things could be said here. First of all, Harvard admissions is complicated. It's and ethnic issues. It's also athletes and people with special kinds of talents and alumni and people who make a financial contributions to the university and families and so forth and so on. Harvard is a private institution. I believe I can decide who my members are. There, there's a sense in which uh, they are at, at a different legal disposition. They're more subject to the statutory restraints on uh, discrimination, where if you take federal funds, you can't discriminate by races in the voting in the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and so on. Then they are to the 14th Amendment of the Constitution kind of prohibitions, which says you can't do this because you're a state actor and state actors are enjoying because of equal protection of the laws from using the racial thing. So those factors differentiate the UNC from the Harvard situation of the defendants. But this is an opportunity for a conservative court to take up this issue. The court's much more conservative than the last time, I think it was 2003, where Sandra Day O'Connor wrote a controlling opinion that basically said, okay, more or less leave the states quo in place, but you guys need to think about whether in 25 years we're going to still need to be doing this, which is my, which is my position. My position is whatever, I'm not going to follow my sword about it in terms of the constitution, but it's no way to live. It's a bad way to run the country. Uh, and we've been at it for a while and we need to wean ourselves from it because it's a distraction from the real challenge. And I'll stop. I, you're giving me a lot of time. Thank you. If you look at the tables in R.C. Diakono's uh, uh, brief, where what they do is the following thing. They stratify by quint by a decile, by 10 percentage uh, tranches, uh, 0 to 10, 10 to 20, 20 to 30. Applicants, in terms of their SAT scores and grades, and admissions rates in terms of the SAT scores and grades. So you can see for Blacks, what fraction of the applicants fall within each tranche? What fraction are in the lowest 10% of all applicants or the next to the lowest 10% and on up to the highest 10%? And what fraction of Asian applicants and white applicants are? And then you can also see for each tranche, what fraction of applicants in that cell, Asian in the 30 to 40 percentile got admitted? And what fraction of Blacks and whites and Latinos did it? Okay. Two-thirds of the Asians are in the top 20% of the population in terms of test scores. Two-thirds mm -hmm. of Blacks are in the bottom 20% of the population in terms of test scores. If you're an Asian in the top decile, 90 to 100 percentile, you got like a 6% chance of getting in. If you're Black, you got a 50% chance of getting in. Okay. Uh, if you're in the 60th to the 70th percentile and you're Asian, forget about it. You ain't getting in. If you're black, you got, I don't know, a 15 or 20% chance of getting in. Okay, and the whites are also favorite relative to the Asians in terms of these very crude comparisons. These are crude, 
It's not multivariate regression analysis. I didn't control for anything. I'm talking about the optics. So look at, if I may, you're Jewish, that all groups do not excel at all activities at the same rate at a given point in time. It happens to be the case in the early century, in the States of America, given our demographics and given the cultural contours of our society, amongst the people who are going to be doing frontier scientific work, who are going to be doing outstanding technical work in the social sciences, who are going to be at the front of the professions and the medicine and, and so forth and so on, they're disproportionately Asian. Asians are overrepresented. It's not the end of the world. I just get to my bottom line. Don't hold our country back by turning these people away in the interest of a 150-year-old issue so we need to grow up and get beyond. Don't hold our country back. The world is moving so, at an amazingly fast clip. Open the doors and let these people in. They are, this is meritocratic. I'm just saying, at okay, the well, top, Larry, at the top, at the, you know what I'm talking about, at the top of finance, at, at the top of medicine, or at the top of mathematics, at the top, okay? This is where the cutting edge innovation is taking place. You don't want to hold the society back because you don't get a demographic proportionality. I don't think you know whether the admissions of Harvard has been demographically proportional, even with their presumed affirmative action actions. The uh, which is what you're suggesting, but maybe they have. But the, I think they have. As a matter of fact, I think they have. Issue is whether Harvard has a certain cachet. It impacts. Yeah. things through time, generations that will have a different context, all the connections, all the opportunities that are associated with going to Harvard. That it, I went to Harvard for grad school. You went to MIT. We have met people that we would never have met. I met the it was close, best friends with the president of Chile, Sebastian Panera, still I'm to, today very good friends, was in Chile I'm four sorry. times. You, you want to use the admissions program to a, a graduate school at Harvard? I'm saying that, I'm saying that some of the social contacts. I'm, I, I'm sorry, you're so omniscient. Uh, nobody's omniscient, okay. but there's I, I'm no. Sorry. Sorry. I'm sorry. Oh, wait, let me continue, Glenn. There's no, to me, uh, the connection between uh, the SATs and your ultimate contribution to society. Uh, is pretty dicey. Your contribution, even just measured in terms of earnings years later, uh, even going to Harvard is not any guarantee of future earnings. It is a guarantee of other, some other things, some other life experiences that get to be shared, get to be experienced by people more than just of one type. The, so- It's not just think, the one type, it's the Asians that you're keeping out. It's not just the one type, I'm sorry, but I just have to add that. People okay. who are knocking on the door today are like the Jewish second-generation immigrants in 1940. You're not helping the same old people. You're doing meritocracy, and you're letting the cream rise to the top. How financially secure do you feel? Imagine a tool to help you make smart financial decisions, a tool that factors in all your financial data and shows what you can safely spend every year for the rest of your life. That tool is Maxify. Powerful, accurate, and easy to use. Developed by Boston University economist Lawrence Kotlikoff, Maxify takes the guesswork out of financial decisions at every stage of life. 
Maxify calculates what you can afford to spend now and throughout retirement. And you can run what-if scenarios to see how your finances might change by taking a new job, buying a home, or downsizing. Knowing the impact before you decide lets you make smarter decisions so you can finally enjoy financial peace of mind. Are you ready? Visit Maxify.com today to start planning. That's Maxify with an I. M-A-X-I-F-I. Maxify.com. Okay, well, they, back in 1940 or 1930, there were quotas on Jews uh, at Harvard. And uh, people like Paul Samuelson could not get tenure at Harvard because he was, was, not, was, because he was Jewish. So there was active discrimination against Jews back then. There was active discrimination against Asians, against Blacks, against Hispanics, all types at Harvard, Yale, all the top places. Now that's changed. We're not back in 1940. But the question is, if we have this ruling that comes out that says, okay, you cannot use personality or other criteria for, you have to just strictly use the SAT and maybe your college, your high school GPA. What I think is going to happen, I want your reaction to this, Glenn. I'm not just trying to Exp- you know, expound here, but I do want to ask, this is in, in the form of a question. My guess is what's going to happen is that Harvard will throw out the SAT and the ACS, I think SC, whatever it's called, ASC, whatever that, AC, ACT, ACT, yeah, that, that test. They may also throw out high school GPAs. They may basically hire, accept people on an interview basis without any information about their true underlying skills or trying to infer it from some short interview, it might be almost at random that people are hired. This, from your perspective, my perspective would be a disaster because we're gonna be eliminating, what we need to do is have, it's one thing to uh, try and uh, have some admissions directors uh, balance the composition of the class because they feel that a diverse class has some advantages that they feel they're whether maybe they're feeling they need to right historical wrongs that they think that discrimination is still active in the world even though you may not or more active than you feel it is but to eliminate the the, the basic purpose of Harvard MIT and Chicago and these top schools which is to perpetuate excellence uh, in these different highly highly tough and, and critical field and technical fields, that would be greatly undermined, I think, because there are, why would that be? Because there are externalities. You learn from Pentecore, you learn from people in your class, Oliver Hart, uh, and they learn from you. And yeah, those it. externalities matter. But, but listen to the structure of your argument. That's You're probably- saying that if, if, if we're not allowed to discriminate against the Asians, we'll kill ourselves. You know, in other words, we'll abandon our pretense. It's a practical question. It's a pr- practical question about how it's going to happen. And I think you could be right that there'll certainly be movement in that direction. Uh, and, and think about it for a minute. What's really happening? Certain representation, desiderata, they want to have enough from the underrepresented groups. So one direct way of doing that, the most efficient way of doing that would be allow them to set their uh, goals and standards uh, meritocratically as they might like, but to use a a kind of racial discrimination regime where they 
they, they go for the best student as measured by whatever the conventional criteria. If you don't like the SAT, use something else. The point is, whatever the information that's available, we make the assessment, but we make it differently for the different racial groups and we get a representation in that way. And so we maintain our standard. But if the court prevents us from doing racial discrimination by using different cutoffs, then we'll have to get rid of cutoffs altogether. We'll have to flip coins. And when we do that, we undermine the integrity of the entire enterprise, not just treat different people unfairly, but we cut down the pillars that are holding the whole thing up. <laughs> I think institutions would be prepared to make sacrifices on that margin. That is, there's two margins here. One of them is discriminating explicitly against applicants. And the other is changing our standards of assessment so as indirectly to induce a more representative yield. And they'll want to use both margins. And uh, if they're pro prohibited from uh, as overt discrimination as they're currently practicing, more weight will go on to the other margin. But that's why I want to disabuse them of their sense of the imperative that they get representative yields in their applicant pools. Uh, I, I think it's too high a price to pay. And I'll tell you what else I think will happen. If they abandon standards at the gate, internal to the university, different departments will start as own. You won't be able to major in a technical field unless you get at least a B in the intro course for that department. The only people getting Bs are the ones who know calculus. Everybody can show up, but not everybody can take my engineering curriculum unless they can get at least the B in differential equations, that kind of thing, which will happen. And there'll be rearguard actions within the now corrupted and the weeds are growing up between the buildings. They're growing up inside people's heads. The cutting edge is dull. The, the sense of outstanding rigor is diluted. That's a disaster. And, and, and it's a kind of self-immolation. It, it's the grand uh, achievement of Western civilization setting itself on fire because why? Because some people were unable to keep up. It's not that, I think that's too strong, Glenn. I think people have uh, come from all kinds of backgrounds uh, and weren't allowed to keep up necessarily or did, did not, were not well served by the educational system. I know if you grew up in Camden, New Jersey, and you were a great mathematical genius, you might not have learned any math in the in elementary school or high school of any value, and your talent was never discovered, and you ended up at some second-rate school. Let, we me, know let me ask you a question. Is that what you think is going on in Camden? I know for sure that's going on. I, was a, I know for sure in the sense that I was, at least I can't say no for absolute sure, but I was in a public school next to Camden, Pensacola, New Jersey. I substitute taught in Camden. I could see the chaos. It was basically building chaos in these schools. The kids are not, are, yeah. So there, there's, so there, anyway, we're not going to resolve the issue. We're, we're, what we're doing is raising the concern that how are the universities going to handle judgment by the Supreme Court that says you cannot uh, use anything except these scores, which are not perfect for anything. The scores were very sorry, Larry, That's not what they're saying. I'm sorry, no, that's just, that's a misrepresentation. We'll go they're ahead. Not saying, they're not saying that you must use test scores and you can't use personality assessment. 
they're saying that you can't you you can't substitute personality assessment for scores when the intention is to actually achieve a certain demographic outcome as opposed to other legitimate and justifiable interests okay. that you might have in the institution. Okay, but that's what they're really saying, Glenn, is that there, they, there are certain criteria you can use and others you can't. And the schools themselves are going to say, because we want to have a blended class, we want to have a class that's diverse, we, want to, we have a societal mission, you may not agree with it, but we feel we do. We, can, we therefore have to not use anything except flipping a, flipping a coin. And then you say, maybe the schools will then take action. Harvard will require you to get a certain B in class. What could also oh, happen- I said, What I said is the school will do what you just said. And then the internal department will set up internal barriers. That'll be a substitute for the screening that should have been done at the entry point. Maybe not. What I've seen is that there's been great inflation with respect to the SAT much bigger fraction are in the top percentile. There's been great inflation, presumably in high schools. There's great inflation in colleges. So it I could agree. well be that that you don't have, that people just give up. Like they, they, if you're a professor- We're back to square one. This is what we were just saying a minute ago, that so we are back in square one. democratic judgments in order to get demographic outcomes. And I think that's a disaster. I, I know, we're in a, we, we are, I'm not giving a resolution. I'm not saying that this years, is not- but you never addressed my point. I'm sorry, we, we're going in a circle. You never addressed my okay. point. Dignity and equality. I'm saying mm -hmm. a special dispensation. This is what I'm against. This is what I hate, that I'm black. Now you're gonna have a program. Now you're gonna have a dispensation. Now there's gonna be a committee. Now there's gonna be a suspension of judgment. Don't do me any favors. The equality that is worth having has to be earned by the performance of the person who seeks it. This is a bad formula for resolving a centuries-old dilemma troubling our country. I don't care what the Constitution says about it. It's not the way we want to run our country. Now, we're 50 years on. You saw what happened in the summer of 2020. You see the test scores. The test scores are just a messenger, Larry. The kid that doesn't do well on the test doesn't know the material, Larry. The kid needs to be taught the material. You want to talk about charter schools? You want to talk about what's going on in the homes? What's going on in the homes? You want to talk about the fatherness of the home? You want to out of wedlock births and how young the mothers are, et cetera? You want to talk there, about there. the culture? In this narrative, of African-Americans descend from slaves in the 21st century with the Chinese coming. And therefore we have to have a national reckoning. I think, I think this is, I think you have to admit one that you have strong views. No, no question, if you were running the country, we would have different policies and, and we would have different national conversations. And, and I think you would persuade a lot of people as you've persuaded me that there's tons of merit in your judgment and, and your calls about how things should go down. But we have a society that's very diverse in its views on this. And we have the Supreme Court now saying we have this metric, the SAT, which is we know is flawed, that this is going to be the absolute Compared criteria. To what? I'm sorry, Larry, okay. we are economists. We're economists. You're trying to make an admissions decision yep. and you're trying to assess the fitness of the candidate. So you don't like the SAT. I want to know compared to what? What are you trying to measure? And what measures it better? 
it's lots just, of things. It's just an instrument. It's just a signal. It's, there's, no, it, there's no divinity in the SAT. The question is, what are we trying to measure? And what we're trying to measure when we're admitting to the- to we're, we're trying to measure something here. unmeasurable. Glenn, to some extent, it's unmeasurable. Uh, it's measured as best which is drive and creativity. Obscurantism. What? No, I think drive and creativity is very hard to measure. And that's much more important because if you have the drive, you will learn the math if you're given the opportunity. Now, do you have to have learn that at Harvard? Not everybody needs to be given the opportunity to live it. It's impossible. I, I, here, I'm just going to tell you this. I'm going to tell you this experience. Yeah. I don't know what your experience is. I've been teaching since 1976. That's over 40 years. In the graduate theory course that I teach, the microeconomic theory course, some of the kids are really quick. When you write the equation on the board, they can solve it before you get to the end. They ask good questions. They understand when you, and you challenge them, they're creative. They've got good minds. There's such a thing as a good mind, okay? When you are doing good economic theory, a good mind comes in really handy. The people who end up with the PhDs from the best departments and who end up as assistant professors at the best programs have good minds. You can tell with noise the quality of a person's mind. In the SAT, in this case, the graduate record examination, especially the quantitative part, is a strong signal of what's going to happen in the first year of the program for the people who are taking they have to understand the math. They have to be able to do the derivations. They have to be able to see through to the end of the thing. People are differently able to do this. Yes. The, 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 the compelling fact is the underrepresented minorities don't have enough people who are able to do it well. And that may the have an explanation. The telling us that. that Why well, you want to jihad against the test? The test is just telling us that there are developmental disparities between these populations. Once we address that, we'll never get to equality. Addressing that may, if it's not being addressed at the preschool level, which it's not, or the at the kindergarten level, or the junior high school, or the elementary school level, or the high school, then it's falling to the colleges to try and address it. And that's what the reality is. You're saying it should be addressed earlier on, not at this level. And what I'm saying is that uh, maybe these are minds that can that are very good minds in the context of how you're defining it. They just need a chance to learn the stuff uh, by a really good teacher for a couple of years and see if they can excel. We do know that too, right? That people blossom late in life, that it's not all or nothing. So I'm concerned, Glenn, let me put it this way. I'm concerned with a decision that comes down that says we're just going to focus on the only thing you can use as MIT is the SAT. Now that's the only thing. And now we have just people who really do really great in the SAT, but they're not particularly creative and they may not be working that hard. They may not be hard workers and they may be morally, you know, deficient in other in certain ways. They may, there's more to people and their success and their productivity in the future than their ability to handle this particular test. I'll give you a personal example. I didn't score super well on the SAT or probably that much. I wasn't way, you know, I did not score as well as you did on the SAT. Well, yeah. So okay. great. Uh, sure. Let me just so, observe your point does not deal with race. It's true 
within groups as well as between groups. Yes, absolutely. Your, your point is quite independent of the affirmative action discussion. It's a question about what are our goals and objectives when we make these so my view would be, my view would be, if I'm on the Supreme Court, I would say, let the colleges decide. This is not for me to be getting into the middle of uh, the university has its objective function. It's been around. Harvard's been around since whatever 1630. It's trying to uh, has lots of objectives. One is uh, to take great minds and train them better to be even better minds and to do great things for society and. It has a formula for doing it. It's been successful. We should stay out of it. That would be my view, that they should just not. What about the Asians? Do, do the plaintiffs not have any rights here? Are they not being discriminated against? I don't think the Asians are being, they're being disproportionately represented in uh, the admissions to begin with. So I don't think the Asians have a case that they're being discriminated okay, against. You and I disagree. I, and I take your point with respect and it may be the way the court decides we're, we're gonna see. But this is not if the Asians had one percent representation at Harvard when they were 30 percent of the population, they're not 30 percent of the population. Obviously, it would be I would be arguing the other way. What uh, it is that they're like 50 percent of the really outstanding and they're like 25 percent of the ones who are admitted, something like that. I think you should be careful about really outstanding. I think really outstanding is a very tough in terms of the really, academic assessment, I, I stratified by decile. I was, I was talking about test scoring, GPA. Again, but you're taking, okay. you're putting a lot more, I, uh, my experience as an academic, personally, and talking, seeing other people and their careers, is that creativity and what, what's called Sitzfleisch in German, which is actually the meat of your tush. Yeah, above a certain uh, threshold, above the 95th percentile, the differentiations is probably going to depend a lot on that. But we're talking about relativity, Larry. Yep, we are. We talk about string theory. We're, we're talking about we're talking my, about learning ancient languages. We're talking even within Harvard, my class in grad school. If I looked around when I was in grad school, the first couple of years, at the people who did the best on the theory exam, and who was going to do the best creative work years later. They're very different people. They're the people that we thought were not going to do all that well, that I and other people thought were just okay, turned out to get the jobs at Harvard and Chicago. So this I, is I, I'm sorry, I don't understand the logic of your argument, Larry. You're saying we have a way of predicting it's imperfect. It's very now, imperfect. therefore, we should not pay attention to it because no, it's we imperfect. should. No, I think other I, criteria. I want you to put everything on that you think is correlated with success. And we'll do an assessment based upon that. We'll be do the assessment based upon the correlation with success. But the fact that whatever we put on there is going to be imperfect means that ex post facto, we can always say what you're saying. What matters is the ex ante predictive power of, of whatever it is that we're using to make the assessment. You can invent qualities that can't be measured and then say, don't use the measurement because it doesn't predict those qualities. We got an argument, Larry. I'm not sure it's not argument. I think that not everything be, can be quantified, and especially. And therefore, so, what you propose to make a decision based upon what you want to give away information because you don't have complete information. No, I want the Harvard admissions people to to have ability to use all the admissions, all the information that's available, including their sense of whether this person 
can make it with some helping and can make it with some remedial, but this person has something special or can deliver something special to other people, even though he may not be, he or she uh, may not be that. Yes, we can't. Yes, you don't go. All right, so we differ. No, it's their club. If they, that's your position is there. It's alchemy. They're making society better through chemistry. And therefore, leave them to their dark formulae and their mixings because they're going to create the kind of society we all want to live in. And mine is it's a fast paced contest. Who's going to get the next micro microprocessor innovation? Who's going to solve the open question? Who's interesting? Who's got a business idea? I'm betting my money on who's going to actually get sales. That's what I'm betting on. And I city. It is rarefied intellectual work. So if you tell me through an interview that this kid from the housing project is really creative and you can persuade me, that means when it comes time to get the answer to the problem, he's going to push the ball forward. Okay, we can talk. But the only thing I'm concerned about, I mean, this is actually let go of the discussion about the Voting Rights Act. Don't represent me based upon my skin pigmentation. It's a superficial trait. It's not who I am. Don't represent my country based upon me of diversity calculation. That's not what we should be about. You had nothing to do with, which is that my late generation ancestors were slaves. Will you please, the people in Northeast Asia, not sitting around twiddling their thumbs about bullshit like this. You're going to look up and figure out rate power because you lost your cutting edge, because you couldn't get your, you're crying in your beer. Your, your woe is me, woe is me. I don't know that, you know, that we can claim this is the case for Harvard admissions officers. Maybe you're right, but maybe you're wrong. We would have to sit down and meet with meet these people and ask, are they deciding to admit this person because of 200 years of slave, 300 years of history? Or are they saying this person, we see some spark, we see something that 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 person's gonna succeed. I think what, what I'm trying to say is that there's so many variables that are not quantifiable here that we should let skilled human beings who are skilled at choosing. It's not like Harvard has failed to produce elite graduates for even given this, what you call affirmative action behavior, it has succeeded. Maybe it hasn't succeeded to the extent you'd like, but we, it's not like we're not cutting edge on in basically all these technical fields and certainly business enterprises, all the high-tech firms that we've got. Of course, some of these guys got into Harvard and they dropped out but to go make their businesses. But anyway, we're not going to resolve this. I think what we've done is exposed our two sides or two views. I'm happy, and to, I'm happy to leave it at that. I, I'm, I'm perfectly comfortable leaving it at that with, with great respect to my friend. Same here. I think it was a fun chat and, and we'll just see what evolves and then we'll keep talking. And we'll certainly- I'm for, I, I'm for it. Econ Talk, is that what you call your podcast? It's called Economics Matters, the podcast. Yeah. Oh, I, Econ Talk is Russ Roberts, I think. I beg your yeah. pardon. You're in a different category.
I noticed that you have real finance experts. I'm an economist, everybody, but we've been talking about social issues. But I noticed you have real insiders in the banks and in the uh, funds and in, and in the financial analyst community. So congratulations on Economics Matters, the podcast, Larry. Thanks, Glenn. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. We have people from all walks of life. This week, we have somebody on for the third time, a reporter embedded, political scientist actually embedded in Ukraine. He's going to be reporting on what's happening. So it's, yeah, it's cool because I'm old enough to have a lot of interesting friends uh, from all around the world. And Glenn, you're one of the, the most interesting. So Thanks so much, and we'll be jumping into your swimming pool soon together. So long, Larry. All right, man. Take care. Bye-bye.